Today on Bread for the Broken with James Grizzle, pastor of Calvary Chapel, Galveston. He hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't. And maybe he's waiting for the right moment and the right time to come through for you. So you can't give up on him because he hasn't ever given up on you. Your time will come at the right time, not just for you, but for other people. And if we're following Christ, we have to take a step back and realize this might not be my time because maybe God has another time appointed that won't just benefit me, but it will benefit other people. And that should always be the goal. As Christians, it's easy to have doubts on whether or not God is really there for us. In times of unanswered prayer or feeling overlooked, we can blame him and wonder if he's really going to come through for us. In today's message, Pastor James wants you to know that God has never left your side and he'll always be there for you. Don't be impatient and think that your timing is better than his. Instead, know that God will always have the best plan for your life. Now here's Pastor James in the book of Esther, chapter 2, with today's edition of Bread for the Broken. You don't have to disclose all your information at the get-go, okay? And they probably weren't asking her, what's your nationality? Where are you from? Well, you got me. You, you picked me up. You know where I'm from. I'm from over there, right? Like, so they probably weren't asking those questions, but Mordecai's like, hold on to that one. And we know why, because the providence of God, and what that means is like he's in control of all the details, that card would, be, would need to be played at the right moment in the right time. And that information shared at the right time would actually save the nation of Israel there. So again, it's just a good idea to, you know, there's some cards you don't have to play right away. And it's probably wise to hold on to some of them, okay? That's what happens here. So she's told by her cousin, Mordecai, just don't let him know, just hold on to that one. It goes on to say, every day, Mordecai, verse 11 would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. So he was constantly checking in on his cousin because he loved her so much. He's like walking by there, purposely walking close to there so he can get updates either from Esther or from Haggai, the guy who was in charge of her care, and just understanding like, okay, what's going on? What's going on? Because this is like a whole, this is a year-long process. It wasn't just like this all happened in an instant. This is a whole year-long process. And it even explains that to us. It says, before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given a prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments. 12 months, a year of beauty treatments. That seems like a lot. There's some reasons why, okay? Let's continue reading it. I'll, I'll throw out some of those reasons. Six months with oil of myrrh, basically just soaking and, you know, getting that oil of myrrh in your pores. So you're sweating myrrh, basically, at the end of this 12-month thing. And, you know, back then, they may have had some natural deodorants, but people probably weren't wearing them. And in hot environments, the stench was real, okay? So if you have odor issues, you can be thankful that you live in the era in which you live, where deodorant and cologne, I mean, cologne, they had perfume and cologne back then, but not everybody was using it. So they're soaking these girls in myrrh for six months. 
It says, followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments. This whole year-long process, why, why six months of myrrh and six months of this oil and perfume and all that good stuff? Why 12 months? Well, one thing that I saw, and I, I saw this from David Guzik, he says one reason for the 12-month period was probably to make sure that none of them were pregnant. Yeah, you're like, but they're all virgins. Oh, well, that's what their parents may have said, and that's maybe what they had said. But you could see how somebody, a young lady, would want to get into there, and then, oh, lo and behold, she has her night with the king. Oh, I'm pregnant. It's your kid. Now you have to, like, now you really have to support me and take care of me for the rest of my life and my kid's life. And I've set my family up for good standing for the rest of their lives. So there's a chance that the 12-month period was so that they're all virgins, like nobody's having a baby. So that's, that's one of those thoughts. The other one is just, it, it is just this pure, it's kind of like a purification process. I mean, they're conditioning these women, like physically, so that they're acceptable before the king. There's an interesting parallel between this and the New Testament, and us, and us and our king, who is Jesus. We're not soaking ourselves in myrrh, you know, or anything like that. What I love about the New Testament and what I love about Jesus and the church, which is his bride, is that he does all the work. He makes us pure and spotless and removes all blemishes. Like he's preparing us for this great wedding banquet to come when he comes back. Like that's what he's preparing us for. So in one sense, we are kind of like Esther within this story. And, and there are some responsibilities on our part. Second Timothy would talk about, you know, there's vessels within the house of God. Some meant for this and some meant for that. Some for honor and some for dishonor. But Paul's admonition to Timothy was, hey, you are a vessel within the house of God. And if you're dirty, clean yourself up. Like that's on you and that's on me. There are some elements to this Christian walk that is on us. This, you know, bearing our cross means coming to this point where it's like this realization of like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And that's exactly where Jesus wants all of us. But also with the understanding that that doesn't mean that we just like sit around and do nothing and just coast. And it's like, if I got struggles and everything, it's, it's irresponsible for me to be like, Jesus, this is your problem. So I'm going to let you deal with it. Right? He's like, no, you clean the vessel. You do what's right. I'll get you to the finish line. But there are responsibilities on our end. So there is that within our sanctification and purity and all that good stuff. But ultimately, Jesus is preparing the bride for his return, which means Ephesians chapter 5, the bride will be presented to him without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle, and it's all done by him ultimately because he paid the price. His blood covered all of our sins. So in one sense, we are being prepared for that day. The other thing is that, you know, this, this myrrh, it's a, it's a fragrant thing. It's medicinal. Myrrh is, and this is what I love about nature, is nature gives us so many good things. So many good things. So many helpful, healthy options. Myrrh does a lot. It's an antiseptic. I mean, you can use it to treat so many things. It's really cool. I love how smart God is. He creates all these plants and things, and he's like, yeah, these can help you. These things can actually help you, and they do. And so it's something that they were familiar with, especially in Persia. We also know that Myrrh was present when Jesus was born. The wise men of the East more than likely came from Persia, 
not from China. I don't know why we always think that. They're not from China. They were from Persia. They were probably from Babylon, because that's east of Jerusalem. And they brought with them frankincense and myrrh and gold. And so they brought these things to Jesus. The other aspect of myrrh is this. It's bitter. It's bitter. And myrrh symbolizes bitterness and suffering. And so when Jesus was born, myrrh was presented to this little baby who would experience bitterness, not on his own, but from others, his brothers, and suffering. Isaiah 60, verse 6. I'm going to just read this to you guys real quick. This is a good reference to the return of Jesus. Isaiah 60, verse 6. I'm going to read it, and you guys pay attention, and then you tell me what's left out. I just give you a big hint. It says, this is all about the future glory of Jerusalem, this, this uh, prophecy from Isaiah. Chapter 60, verse uh, 6, it says, vast caravans of camels will converge on you, and camels of Midian and Ephah, the people of Sheba will bring gold and frankincense and will come worshiping the Lord. What's missing? Myrrh, bitterness, and suffering. When Jesus comes back, the bitterness, the suffering, it's gone. In the meantime, you as a believer, well, you can expect some myrrh within your life. I'm sorry to say that, and that doesn't make me a popular preacher, but I don't really care because my aim is not to be a popular preacher. My aim is to be a truth teller. And being a follower of Christ means that you get your own vial of myrrh in this life. And you already know that. We already know that. We know that suffering's a part of this deal. But it's worth it because in the end, there's no, the, the myrrh is taken away. So Esther and all the other young ladies get soaked in this stuff for quite a while. Again, when it's a hot day and they're sweating, they're sweating myrrh, okay? They're like, they're sweating myrrh. That's what they're doing. But myrrh, a, it's, it's a sweet-smelling aroma. The other thing I like about that is our prayers are likened to sweet-smelling aromas. That's how God receives them. So maybe from like, you know, we're going through a time of suffering, but as we're crying out to God, what he is taking in from that is worship. It's beauty. It's beauty, right? And he's got your back. You're going through difficult times. He's got your back. And it's true for Esther. It's true for you. It's true for me. So they go through this whole treatment. Verse 13, it says, when it was time for her to go to the king's palace, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted to take from the harem. That evening, she was taken to the king's private room. And the next morning, she was brought to the second harem, the other place, where the king's wives lived. There she would be under the care of, I don't know, Shahashgaz, I guess, the king's eunuch in charge of the concubines, right? So from the harem, now a concubine. She would never go to the king again unless he had especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. So that's the reality of being selected. Like the king has one night with you. After a year of your beauty treatments, you hope it pays off, I guess, He's got one night with you, and then you go and live with all the other ones in the harem, and just maybe he calls your name. Just maybe. But from there, like, that's your life. You don't get to go and get married. You don't get to go and have kids. You don't get to experience anything like that, because you belong to the king. That's it. So Esther... It's her time to go. Verse 15, it says, Esther, the daughter of Abihel, 
That's her dad, who was Mordecai's uncle. Mordecai adopted his younger cousin, Esther. We already saw that. When it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Haggai, the one who was in charge of her, the eunuch in charge of the harem. She asked for nothing except what he suggested. And she was admired by everyone who saw her. So she was so beautiful. So when it came time to like bedazzle Esther, she's like, I don't need it. I don't need it. I'm just going to go in like this. She took his advice. And what that kind of suggests to us is that she was just so beautiful. He's like, just go. You don't need this stuff. You don't need this dress. Just go for it. What's interesting, and before I get too much further along, so you have Esther. It doesn't tell us that she's the only Jew. It doesn't tell us that. There's 400, there's about 400 ladies that get selected. Sometimes our assumption is she's the only Jew, but we know that she is Jewish and she's in the midst of other Persian ladies. Part of what I discovered today was some Persians don't like to be called Iranians, right? And some Iranians don't want to be called Persians. Majority of the population in Iran is Persians, but these girls are Persian girls. Now, the next one is um, Hebrew girls. Jewish girls, Israeli girls, IDF girls, right? Like, these are, don't mess with these girls, right? They are, um, everybody who is 18 goes into the Israeli uh, military, okay? And so these are just some of the girls that are over there. But there's a little bit of a distinction there, okay? And I'm told that if you spend any time over in the Middle East area, that you can distinguish between a Persian, an Iranian, a Jew, Saudi Arabian, they have, all have they're similar looks, but there are also some distinctions there. Esther's living in this palace, and nobody knows who she is or where she's from at all. She probably doesn't look exactly like all the rest of them, but nobody's, I mean, everybody is absolutely clueless as to who this girl is. Even the king who marries her is like, oh, I didn't know you were Jewish. He had no clue, no clue at all. So, I just wanted to create some nice little visuals for your brain to kind of see like, there's real people that lived over there and at that time, and, and here's a good idea of how they looked. Just normal people, just normal people. So been blessed with the opportunity to go to Israel three times. Every time I go over there, I mean, just the difference in how people look, and it is amazing, and it is the coolest thing I've ever, and even to this day, I think about it, I just always smile. Because I see them, and there's, there's some that are, they're red hair, and some are walking, they have blue eyes, and skin is darker than others. Some is way more paler than others. And it's just a, like this beautiful like tapestry that God has put together over there in the Middle East. It is amazing. It is really one of the coolest places I've ever been. Amazing, absolutely amazing. And the hospitality over there is second to none. Like, amazing. Whether they're Muslims or Jews, most of them that I encountered, so friendly. So incredibly friendly like invite you into their house and break bread with you, kind of friendly. It's amazing. Now, are all like that? Of course not. But that's just one of my experiences there. But there's all these girls that get taken from their families, and this is the rest of their life. And these are real people. But Esther has her moment. She goes in. She, she listens to the advice of the one. The guy, Haggai, verse 16, says she was taken to King Xerxes in the royal palace in in early winter of the seventh year of his reign, and this is, you know, you can trace this back to historical documents, okay? The king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. He was so taken by Esther, he's like, contest is over. Kinda. We don't know that technically, though, because 
he's not the best guy in the world, right? And so you're like, well, number one, how many girls had it been before you got to Esther? And did you continue on after Esther? Because if you read through the rest of the scriptures here, it seems like the search wasn't totally called off, maybe, but I don't know. So he's a king, he's got power, he's got all these ladies, and I don't know. It's just, this is kind of how it is. Even in modern day Persia, what I learned is that they have this like trial marriage thing that they allow, it's legalized, where you can kind of get married to somebody in order that you can have sex with them and see if you're compatible, and if not, then you both can go your separate ways. Like they, they make it legal so that you can get around their because they have their own set of religion and rules and all that good stuff. Um, they, they, they make it so that you can like, well, try before you buy kind of a deal, right? It's like their mentality. And you're like, why? What? It wasn't much different back, back in the day, right? Here's the king. He loves her. He's impressed by her. He gives her the crown. Verse 18, to celebrate the occasion, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor for all his nobles and officials, declaring a public holiday for the provinces and giving generous gifts to everybody. Like, this dude is stoked. Like, he found a star, and he's like, everybody's going to benefit from this. We're giving, this is like Christmas. We're giving everybody gifts. Verse 19, even after all the young women had been transferred to the second harem, all the young women, all the young women, not ones that like, we don't know what number Esther was, but whichever ones were after her, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. You, no, you don't go home. You all go to the harem. So we don't know if Esther was the last one. We know if she was the first one. We have no idea. But all the ladies that were brought there remain in the king's harem. It says, and Mordecai had become a palace official. So he got a promotion. It says, Esther continued to uh, keep her family background and nationality a secret, and she was still following Mordecai's direction, just as she did when she lived in his home. So she gets selected. All the other ladies, who the, the estimate there was around 400 ladies in total, they're girls, okay? Don't, don't misunderstand that. I can't remember what the age frame, time frame was, but it's probably as low as like 14, 14 to, I don't know what the, the cap would be for for them, but all those girls, 400 of them, just lost their lives. They're still alive, but any, like I said before, any future hopes of getting married? No, it's not going to happen. Any future hope of having children? Well, maybe if he calls you up one night and you can get impregnated by him, then you can have a kid, but your chances are, because there were already, there was already a harem, so it's not like your odds are 400 to one, it's 400 plus whatever, however many he had before that. But that is now your life. And that's what Esther walks into as a Jewish girl with her Jewish cousin, Mordecai. And they're living in a non-Jewish place where they had the freedom to go back to Israel, but nobody wants to go back to Israel because it's wild and it's crazy. Everything's been destroyed there. So they, they live, they, they choose to hang back in this place that's not their, it's not their home. But even in their decision to not go back, God is still going to protect them. He's still going to watch over them. He's not done with them, even though there's not a lot of evidence that they're still continuing on with him to a certain degree. I'm not saying that all Jews over there had stopped worshiping God, but they got really comfortable living in a land that was not their own. And when God had opened the door and even had told them in the word, 
You're going to be taken captive for 70 years, but then you can go back home. A majority of those chose not to go back home. But even in that, God wasn't, he wasn't offended. He wasn't like, okay, you don't want to go back to the place that I secured for you, then fine, good luck. He never says that. He didn't say that about you and me either. It's an amazing thing. I can be as stubborn and as hard-headed as possible, and I probably am one of the most stubborn people I know. And even in my relationship with Jesus, absolutely. But what, what's amazing about it is like, he's never like, you know what? I'm done with you. He's so good. He's so gracious. And he still watches over us. And, and even within this story, he's going to use Esther and Mordecai to rescue the, entirety, the, the entire nation of Israel. And this last little part of chapter two is, it's the great setup, right? It's like God's in control and he uses this story. This is going to be like the main thing that sets everything off. But look at verse 21. One day as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, that means that he has an official position there. He's one of like a top guy, so to speak, there. Two of the king's eunuchs, Bigtha and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and uh, gave Mordecai the credit for the report. When the investigation was made, Mordecai's story was found to be true. The two men were impaled on a sharpened pole, okay, because that's how they killed people back then. This was all recorded in the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign, which you can look that up and find the historical accuracy there as well. If you don't believe the Bible, well, then believe books that support the Bible. The Bible's true. So that's that little story of like, well, this is kind of a weird story to put in here. This story makes all the difference really in the salvation of the Jews, because it was this moment that God had providentially placed Esther and Mordecai in the right position at the right time to hear this plot to kill King Xerxes, and Mordecai becomes the hero. God uses him to save this king's life. They will record it. The king will forget all about it until the right time, until the right moment. And then he's like, oh, when the guy's reading him the, historic, the story, he's like, wait a minute, what did we do for that guy? We didn't do anything for him. Let's reward him. And that sets everything into motion. That last little bit, I want you to understand, God has not forgotten about you. He hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't. And maybe he's waiting for the right moment and the right time to come through for you. So you can't give up on him because he hasn't ever given up on you. Your time will come at the right time, not just for you, but for other people. And if we're following Christ, we have to take a step back and realize this might not be my time because maybe God has another time appointed that won't just benefit me, but it will benefit other people. And that should always be the goal. That's true for Mordecai. That's going to be true for Esther. And I really, honestly, I believe that that's true for you and for me. And there's times where you feel like, man, God's not even here. He's not even here. I've, I've been trying to do everything right, and, and I get nothing for doing things right. Well, it just might not be the right time. So just hold on. Story's not over. Your story's not over. You're still breathing. You still rolled out of bed, however long that took you, and whatever grunts and moans that took you to get out of bed. You're still alive, so that means the story's not over. He's not done yet. So just hold on to him. He'll come through for you when the time is right. Hope to the hopeless hope.
We've all heard the famous words that Mordecai spoke to Esther when he was encouraging her to talk to the king. Who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It's a great rallying cry. And all of us long for those moments in time when we're right where we need to be to change the world. But don't forget, Esther was in the kingdom for many years before that time. God placed her there ahead of time, and she was right where she needed to be in that exact moment. When you look at your life and wonder if you're in the right place, remember that God placed Esther ahead of time. She didn't know for years why she was there. God has placed you in the exact place that He needs you to be for a future purpose that you can't even imagine yet. Don't let the day-to-day -day get you down. He's always working. You've been listening to Bread for the Broken with Pastor James Grizzle. Pastor James is going through the book of Esther in this series, and you won't want to miss a message. Mordecai was there to encourage and empower Esther, and we're here to do the same for you in your walk with Christ. You can find today's message and many others on our website, breadforthebroken.com. Once again, that website is breadforthebroken.com. While you're there, check out how you can donate to Bread for the Broken and join us in spreading the good news. Our desire is that our listeners would find hope and new life in Jesus. We hope that that's what you found today and that we'll get to see you again next time here on Bread for the Broken.